The opinions expressed on this WebmasterRadio.fm program are those of the host, guests, and callers, and do not reflect those of the staff, management, or advertisers of WebmasterRadio.fm. Any rebroadcast or retransmission of this program without the express written consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. Feeling better? Looking better? Making life better? It's Life Tips. Life Tips. We'll explore the latest innovations, introduce you to the latest products, and bring you the tips from experts and environmental pioneers to help you lead a better life. Life Life Tips. Life Tips. Making your life smarter, better, faster, wiser. Welcome your hosts, Byron White and Amanda Connor. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. Byron here. Welcome uh, back. I've been out for a couple weeks. Amanda, how are you? I'm good. I missed you. I'm so glad you're back. It's, it's so hard doing a radio show without my other half, Byron. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, I must say I was not listening into the show, but I'm certain you did a fabulous job, and I can't wait to hear the recordings. Uh, but, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, we've got a great guest on the show today, um, Wade Roosh. I hope I pronounced his name correctly. He's a chief correspondent for Economy, which we can yep. learn a little bit more about today. Uh, he's going to help us. Uh, he's a veteran of science and tech writer, and done some really interesting things. So we'll learn about his vantage point in the in the world wide Wade, as it as he likes to call him, his <laughs> weekly column. <laughs> um, yeah. But Sorry, uh, his, but is his all special- holding up well on your end? Everything's great. Um, you know, I really brought Wade in because he his uh, specialty is in online virtual worlds, social computing, uh, internet technology. So, you know, since he's got such a great background in it and he is a chief correspondent, I thought maybe he could talk to us a little bit more about the future of internet technology and where he sees social computing heading in in the next, you know, few years. He's also um, he's also got a great background in search, so I thought maybe we could get a little insight from him as to, you know, what's going on in that world. We'll pick his brain and get get weighed down under. <laughs> and just, <laughs> I know. Uh, I've end, been traveling <laughs> for 27 hours. Can you believe it? I can't believe I'm talking right now. So if I'm delirious, we're going to have you know somebody over at Webmaster Radio just like shut me off or mute me or something. I don't know. It <laughs> might might be a crazy show today. Um, but a quick summary of Africa is 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 in order for any guests out there that were in tune with the fact that I would just return from South Africa. What an amazing trip. Um, I'll bet. I just hope that everyone has the opportunity to go to Africa someday in their life, and, and there's so many incredible game reserves there. We went to the Kruger National Park and, and spent some time, about three nights in the park, and um, we just got incredibly lucky. The weather was fantastic, and we saw the Magnificent Seven, which was a hard thing to do, particularly when you're there for such a short period of time, and um, and literally got right next to, like, feet away from a pride of, of 12 lions. Oh, my God. Um, rhinos that uh, that were very difficult to spot. They kind of hang out underwater most of the day. Uh, but we were able to actually kind of creep up behind them, and we were with a guy that was blowing these little pouches of dusty uh, sand to figure out which way the wind's blowing, and then we crept around and actually got into the bush and, and snuck up behind these rhinos <laughs> that were enormous. Um, that was really fun. It was a, one big, huge male rhino that was uh, that was uh, that sort of split up a couple of female rhinos um, that each had a, a, a baby. Uh, so he was out doing his territorial little dance to kind of, uh, you know, look at both of them and check them out <laughs> uh, for future reference, perhaps. <laughs> but uh, that was a powerful thing to see. Um, and we saw about five leopards um, at different times throughout our, our three days there. Five leopards, just unbelievable. And we got some shots of leopards, you know, sitting in trees and, 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 and beginning a hunt uh, at one point. Um, and uh, and buffalo are interesting. Saw quite a few buffalo. Um, saw a herd of about four or five hundred buffalo all grazing on this magnificent setting, and, and got really close to a bunch of elephants. But the big highlight were were two things. There's of course the big five: um, rhino, leopard, lion, and buffalo and elephant. 
Um, but there are two other uh, um, sort of special sightings that one can hope for. Um, and we were just blessed and lucky enough to, to have an experience. Two other uh, really exciting things. One is a cheetah. Uh, mm-hmm. which which looks a lot like a leopard. We only saw one cheetah, um, and he actually was a bit freaked out because he came really close to a leopard, and, and they, they, they kind of don't like one another. Um, <laughs> so he, once discovering that he was in this territorial leopard land, he, he backed off and moved out of the land and sort of crept away and almost hit a little bit, even though the cheetah is a little bit bigger and stronger um, than a leopard. But uh, this is a, a female leopard. <laughs> yeah, nice. Um, but the but strangely enough, the highlight for me with all of that was was seeing wild dogs, which is the other part of the Magnificent Seven. And wild dogs are very rare. There's only about two thousand um, wild dogs in, in Kruger National Park. Um, oh my god! Nice. Wow, that's pretty good. Um, and these dogs are magnificent. They look a little bit like a hino, which we we saw as well. Um, but the hyena is, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of spotted. It looks like a darker. Um, I'll show show you some pictures, um, Amanda. But the mm-hmm. the uh, the wild dogs travel in packs, and they just zigzag around the roads, dive into the woods, and come out with like an impala in their teeth and eat it in like five minutes and then move on. That is they're, crazy. They're intense. They're intense. We we followed them along. We didn't see a, a kill, which is kind of good. I think my my wife might not have liked that too much. Um, but we, we we followed these dogs along and parked our, car, our 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 jeep, and the dogs came out of the woods and started playing in this puddle right next to the car. So they were just coming right up to the car, and these are you know these are pretty savage. You know, little critters here. You know, these are not house pets. They, they, they look precious. They were playing in the water and, and just having a really interesting time. So anyway, that's my Africa Bill. Hopefully, that gets somebody excited to, to go because it, it's, um, it's just it's such a absolutely magnificent country. The, the people are incredible. Uh, the terrain is is just as you have dreamed it to be. Um, and we've been planning this for about, you know, we actually canceled it once, uh, but got back on track. Um, uh, we canceled it a few years ago, but we were really excited to, 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 to make it happen in 2009. So we did. Byron, so, that's amazing. That's really phenomenal. Yeah. That is awesome. I mean, once-in-a-lifetime experience. And, you know, I think we should actually maybe dive into this more in the future with future shows and talk about your experience and maybe bring on some great guests who could, you know, um, uh, you know, enlighten other other uh, our listeners as to how they can partake in things like this. Well, there's there's yeah, there's a lot there's a lot more to the story as well. We've spent some time in Cape Town and and um, and you know got out into uh, some some really interesting, uh, very poor areas of town. We actually visited. Uh, anyway, I can, I can tell you more later. But but <laughs> yeah, it, it's well, we'll have to do something for some guests that are planning some trips um, mm-hmm. or want to consider planning some trips because there's you, you just you can't do enough great things for the country. But let's take a little break and okay. uh, and, and move ourselves over to Wade, Wade uh, after the break. So we'll be back, everybody, after the break. Life Tips will be right back after this short break. How do you choose the right affiliate network to partner with? The answer is simple. MarketHealth.com, where health and wealth connect. Established in 1998, the MarketHealth.com affiliate network allows you to market and promote the world's leading health and beauty offers on the net. Start making recurring income and the highest payouts in our industry. Choose from over 50 of the hottest selling offers, ranging from herbal supplements, skincare, vitamins, beauty products, weight loss, and much more. Sign up for free at MarketHealth.com and start making money today. AffiliateContracts.com is an affiliate network like no other. Hands-on account management right from setup gives personal attention with continual account optimization. And our affiliates will attest our offers consistently pay more money every single day. Seriously. And hey, want to make a lot of money fast? Check out our unbeatable, I mean unbeatable insurance offers. Higher conversions with programs that are sustainable and scalable because AffiliateContracts.com is committed to you for the long run. 
bigger payouts, higher conversions, and attention you expect from dedicated affiliate managers. Affiliatecontracts.com. That's what the affiliate world needs. Revenues can come from many different sources. Are you capturing additional revenue from your payment processor or leaving money on the table? Lytle and Company can help you grow your top line revenue. Lytle and Company provides payment processing and consultative merchant services for multi-channel retailers, along with internet and direct response businesses who sell directly to consumers. Lower the total cost of payment acceptance while improving your business processes and chargeback management with Lytle and Company's innovative reporting and analytics features. Lytle and Company. The card's not present, but we are. Find out more at Lytle. L-I-T-L-E dot com. Search engine marketing formulated for Web 2.0. SEM Synergy. Live broadcast Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, or on demand anytime inside the Search Engine Optimization Channel. On webmasterradio.fm. And now, back to Life Tips. Making your life smarter, better, faster, and wiser. Here are your hosts. Welcome back, everyone. Wade, are you with us? I am. Hey, guys. Hi. Welcome, welcome to the show. Happy to have you on. Tell us a little bit about Xconomy. Well, sure. And, and I am, uh, no sweat, but the name's Roush, R-O-U-S-H. So, ah. uh, yeah. Um, Xconomy is a multi-city network of news, online news publications focused on technology and innovation and entrepreneurship. Uh, we started out in Boston a couple of years ago. And we have since expanded into two other cities, um, San Diego and Seattle. And we picked those three cities because they have this magic combination of uh, just a ton of um, startup activity and entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. but also um, key ingredients to um, innovation like uh, venture capital and great universities and great anchor companies in each city um, that are a you know, great source of people who come out of those companies. I mean, in, in Seattle, for example, you've got great companies like Real and Amazon and Microsoft that are constantly churning out uh, sort of alumni who have the resources to go and start their own new companies. Same thing happens in San Diego and Boston. Um, and none of those cities had uh, already had a, uh, you know, a really strong um, ecosystem of existing blogs. So, you know, in Silicon Valley, obviously, a ton of people are looking at this phenomenon of startup investment and technology growth. Um, so that's the last place that we might expand to. Um, love to expand there eventually, but there are, there are all these other places around the country and around the world where there's lots of innovation going on um, that deserve um, a brighter spotlight, and that's what we, we try to bring. Um, so um, I'm chief correspondent, and uh, I'm based in the Boston office, Cambridge, Mass, actually, and um, I spend most of my time writing about cool web and software and Internet companies in the Boston area. And uh, But as Amanda mentioned, I do get a chance every Friday to write a, a column called, uh, appropriately enough, called Worldwide Wade. And uh, I, do, I get to take off the geographical blinders for that column, and I get to write about anything I want going on anywhere. I tend to focus on, just because it's up my alley and I love this stuff, I tend to focus on multimedia, digital media, um, things like um, virtual worlds, um, mapping, um, anything to do with imaging or photography uh, I really love to write about, uh, and just the whole sort of revolution going on in the way we um, envision the world um, digitally. That's sort of fair game when I when I sit down to write my column on Thursday for, for Friday. Tell us a little bit about the, the business model. You know, do you view yourself as an online publisher and, and, and how is the how is revenue generated for the company? Sure. I mean that's an absolutely valid question. That's the first question I ask any company that I'm interviewing. And the answer is we are an online publication and we um, have a, a mix of, of sort of conventional and unconventional revenues. Um, the conventional revenue comes from advertising. We have display ads just like every other online publication. Um, we don't have uh, search or keyword-based ads. Um, we just don't feel that those uh, bring in um, uh, substantial revenue and, and they kind of drag down the, the look and feel of the site in some ways. So we haven't gone that route. Um, but uh, the unconventional route um, that we have gone is um, we call underwriting um, or um, long-term sponsorship. We have relationships with local uh, 
technology companies and service providers in all of the cities where we do business. Um, so they, it's sort of like a PBS model. You know, uh, you'll you'll turn on the the news hour and you'll say, you know, they'll say this show brought to you by Mobile or Exxon or whoever it happens to be that week. Uh, we have relationships here in Boston with companies like um, EMC or Biogen. Um, or um, service providers like um, real estate companies or accountants or other firms that, that cater to the technology industry. So they have um, sponsorship agreements with us. And um, the third source of revenue for us is our event series. We were sort of a 50% online publisher and 50% event company. So in all of our cities, we have uh, almost monthly events uh, for the technology community. And when I say technology, I really mean information technology, biotech and life sciences, and uh, energy, especially clean tech and green energy. So those three sectors are strong in all of our cities, and we kind of rotate through um, different types of events um, in those three subject areas. And, and the events are very successful and have been a great revenue source for us. Hmm. Tell us your perception of the publishing industry as a whole. Um, I'm sure that, you know, it, it's it, it's time to see change and innovation come to any industry, and that's what you track and follow. But are you seeing innovation come to the publishing industry? And if so, are, are you guys participating in any any interesting innovation happening? I think there's a ton of innovation going on in the publishing industry, and it's, uh, it's certainly not clear yet what is going to replace the familiar old model of the, the big city newspaper and the national magazine but um, those things are uh, obviously th- those traditional media are suffering from various kinds of um, ailments, um, economic or otherwise. And here in the Boston area, for example, we have lived for the past year with the kind of ongoing um, saga of uh, the Boston Globe and whether the New York Times company was going to shut them down or sell them or squeeze more concessions out of the unions and. It looks like they're, they're, they are going to stay open for now, um, but you know there was a real question about um, how solid the, the globe's footings were. And um, I think during that whole um, episode here in Boston, people started to look around and say, "Well, um, what what if the Boston Globe actually went away? What what, what, would, what would a big city without a big city newspaper look like?" And I, I think you know a few years ago, it would have been a pretty much a, an arid desert. There was no one around to fill that vacuum. Um, I think that today, though, um, there are plenty of people who could step in and perhaps not completely replace everything that a a big city newspaper like the Globe does, but uh, who could definitely carry the baton forward. Um, We, you know, specialize in coverage of um, uh, small business and and medium and large-sized business entrepreneurship and innovation. So we've got the technology and the business side covered. Um, there are, are plenty of, of other uh, sort of small and community-based blogs uh, around Boston and in every major city now that cover, you know, where you've got passionate people covering a specific field that fascinates them um, and, and drumming up advertising revenue and other kinds of revenue around that. Um, so, you know, I do think that, that there are people experimenting uh, with many different kinds of economic and revenue models um, you've got people like Jeff Jarvis at uh, the City University of New York um, leading a really interesting long-term study of these alternative business models in journalism. And so it's not, it's not as if uh, nobody's asking these questions. And, and, you know, we do think that we're trying to innovate. Um, uh, we, hope, we hope that uh, we're on the cutting edge. You know, we're, we're all print journalists um, by background here at Xconomy, and so we know what that, how that industry works. Um, but when, when it came time for us to launch this new venture, uh, there was really no question um, that it would be an online-only uh, venture and that we did not want to saddle ourselves with all of the enormous uh, costs that go with, um, with print publishing and distribution. So, um, you know, we're, we're also venture-funded, I should say that. We have angel and venture backing, and that's been a big help. And so, you know, with that combination of support from investors and local sponsors and people who come to our events, we think we can make this work. 
Now, Wade, if I could just ask you real quick on on the subject of venture capital, um, if you guys are venture capital backed, I was reading your article recently about how venture capital in the coming year is looking to take a, a negative, um, you know, negative uh, investment in, in the coming future. So, do you yourself worry about the status of X economy based on the future of venture capital? Yeah. So. Um that, that article you're referring to is a piece we ran a couple of days ago that was a long interview with a, a venture partner here in the Boston area, a guy at uh, Charles River Ventures named John Auerbach. And, and um, the point that I was making there um, in, the, in the introduction to that article was that if you look at the long-term um, statistics um, on, on how well the venture industry is doing, you know, you know, they put a lot of money into startups every year. Um, and um, in order to stay alive, they have to get that money back eventually. And the classic way to get their money back was when the companies that they invested in went public um, on the stock market or when those companies were purchased by larger companies. So those are the two classic sort of exit scenarios. That's when the venture capitalists and their investors, who are called limited partners or LPs, that's when they get their money back. And um, there just have not been nearly enough exits um, in the last few years um, to make to keep the whole venture model sustainable. And, that, and so there are big questions about whether there really should be as much money going into um, venture funds as there is. Uh, LPs seem to think that uh, at least some LPs still think it's a good investment, the venture the venture business. So they're still putting money in. But there are people inside the industry and there are people outside the industry saying, wait a minute, you know, it doesn't look like um, the exit environment is really going to turn around anytime soon. Um, we've seen a few IPOs this year, but uh, not really enough to reassure everyone that the venture, the venture model is, is, um, is regaining health. So, you know, I, there's a ton of open questions about how big the venture industry should be, um, whether whether venture funds should be collecting as much money as they do, whether the industry needs to shrink. And if it does shrink, will there be, you know, where will entrepreneurs turn for support and funding? I think we're, we're okay here at Xconomy because we've raised enough money to get us through a certain period of time. Um, and, uh, you know, we certainly plan on um, being, you know, uh, at break-even um, uh, soon, so you know, I think we'll make it. Um, we've got revenue, so um, but but there's a lot of really creative people, with great ideas out there that might not get funded because the you know the classic mechanism that we've invented in this country over the last you know 50 years called venture capital is really going through a crisis period. So on the other hand, you know, people seem to say that every five or ten years that venture capital is in the crisis period. So, and it always finds a way to muddle through. So, you know, maybe everything will be okay. And uh, the downturn in venture capital investments does it have to does that directly relate back to the success of of the current economy, the stability? I mean, is is there a direct correlation between the two? Well, I, the correlation I think is that uh, if if you look at the, the sort of like the ten year averages. Um, the venture has still been um, a, a better performing way of investing your money um, than most others. So if you look at the performance of the, the stock market over the last 10 years, like the Dow Jones or the S&P 500, it's um, uh, less than you would have made if you had put your money into into the venture industry, into a venture fund. But um, next year, the 10-year average is going to look a lot worse because a lot of really great exits that happened back in 2000, 2001 are no longer going to be counted um, in the 10-year average. So the, the overall percentage is going to go way down. And, and, and uh, you know, basically the, 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 everything is not going to look as rosy as it looks right now. So um, the, 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 the big problem the venture... Uh, the big problem they're facing is that limited partners um, have been very hard hit by the economic downturn. There's not as much money uh, going around. They don't feel as liquid as they were. So it's been harder for a lot of venture funds to uh, raise their next fund. And those funds are the funds that they use to invest in startups. So, yeah, there's a direct correlation between the economic crisis and the health of the venture industry. And, and that filters down, trickles down to affect entrepreneurs. So everyone is, everyone is hurt by this, yeah. Yeah. So um, long story short, Entrepreneurs, maybe give it a few years before you before you show up on the doorstep. No, no, absolutely not. If you have a great idea and you think it's investable, go for it. You know, if you have a great idea, you will find investors. 
Um, and that's what they do best, is they know how to uh, identify great entrepreneurs and they know how to put together management teams and put money behind them. So uh, I, I think the worst possible thing for our economy now would be if entrepreneurs and people with ideas went and hid for a few years. <laughs> so we really need great, smart people to get out there and really try to uh, you know, change the world with their great ideas. Well, good. So, so some, you know, some, some speed bumps, but all in all, you know, positive outlook. Yeah, I think you know, entrepreneurs and the people who cover them are pretty, a pretty optimistic group. They have to be. <laughs> they have to be in general. That's, you know, you wouldn't want to take the risks. You wouldn't want to put yourself through the, the tremendous amount of work that goes into, into, you know, building a startup if you didn't believe that um, in the power of technology to change the world. Now, Byron, you you are yourself are a, a great entrepreneur. I mean, you know, how do you, how does this situation make you feel? Horrible. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Um, no, the it's it's been tough out there. I mean, it, it's the problem with with an entrepreneur like myself is a down market like this really beats up the value of your of your company as you are looking perhaps for investment. Um, you know, it, it's just it's just harder to raise capital. You have to typically give up quite a bit more equity. Um, it, it also can be a more competitive marketplace because there are a lot more people unemployed right now that have a lot of times on their hands to whip up some some savvy business plans on some innovative great ideas. Um, you know, so there's just there's a, it, it's just it just seems like an odd time out there. But I have a question for you, and it and it relates to a new marketplace, and and that would be what I would call sort of a pre-IPO marketplace, right? Do you think we'll ever have see an opportunity for um, you know non venture capitalists you know even let's say angel investors to begin investing in funded companies um, well in advance without the red tape that's typically required to invest in those companies so I call it sort of a pre IPO market could you ever see that huh well I guess that's definitely not sort of part of the classic model for how most high-growth companies grow. Mm-hmm. I think the classic model is definitely that they they start off in the very beginning um, with a small pot of seed money, mm-hmm. you know. And a lot of companies these days can get started for just you know maybe a hundred thousand, five hundred thousand dollars just to prove mm-hmm. their model, and then they go out for a Series A round and they they raise that either from um, individual angel investors or increasingly from um, these groups of, of angels who work together. There are many, many of those around the country now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's one such group called Common Angels that is local here in New England and is an investor in economy. And um, Or they go to, depending on how much money they need, they go to um, a venture fund. And they often will have much more money to invest. And you know, if you need on the order of a million to five million or more, you really need to turn to a, a classic venture fund. And then, you know, uh, I think the, uh, the hope is that um, you can get a Series A round, maybe a Series B round, a Series C round if you need it from the venture guys. But by that point, you'll be ready to, uh, either to go public or you will have made such an impact and proved your value to, um, to other companies in the industry to the point where they'll uh, see you as an attractive um, acquisition target, and that'll be your exit. So at no point in that whole process is there any chance, really, for anybody other than an angel investor or a venture investor to get involved. So, but maybe you're right. Maybe the, there needs to be some thinking about how, how, to, how to build in opportunities for more people to, to, to contribute to company growth. You know, I, the problem is partly that I think entrepreneurs are very protective about their equity. And, uh, you know, there's just months and months of negotiation that go into every single funding round. Um, and, and, you know, founders want to keep as much of their ownership as they can. Um, investors want as much ownership as they can get for the money they put in. Um, and you also, of course, need to protect the amount of um, equity that you're, hold, you're keeping around for, for stock options for your employees, for, you know, for performance incentives. So, there's just a lot of demands on the um, ownership pool, and I'm not sure how you would how you would hand out stock to to folks. You know, ex, you know, there's just no model for that, unfortunately. When I was uh, certain that I would become an entrepreneur someday, probably around the age of 18, I started 
drafting, you know, little micro, almost micro business plans, a paragraph or so. And one of my favorites early on was was starting a beer company, not surprisingly about the age of 18, um, with the notion, naively, that the customers could become your your stockholders with every six-pack that they purchased. <laughs> um, but the concept is there, and, and that, that would be one example of, of sort of a pre-IPO. You know, you have a, a, a microbrewery. You have, you have people that believe in the brewery itself and believe there's a market out there, that their beer is the best beer in the world and may someday win awards and lead to national distribution. Um, or even the opposite extreme of that, uh, Rainier beer, which is a great viral marketing story, um, sold a couple of times, loser brand in the beer industry, right? Um, so anyway, the, the concept is why not have vendor investment or customer investment, you know, in, in, in a small company? Uh, you know, what would be so wrong with that, you know? And, Right, right. Hmm. Well, nothing, I guess. I mean, um, it would the just depend on... Sense, though, that the government does not like that model. I think it's, it's actually illegal to, uh, to give stock away in return for purchasing, say, a product. You know, the, 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 solic- the solicitation aspect of it is, is heavily, heavily regulated. At least that's what I discovered. Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, if, if, you're, if you're looking to give away stock with your six-pack, I think that might be problematic. But, I mean, basically what, what it sounds to me like what you're talking about is a uh, just a different model for an IPO. You, you know, when we, mm-hmm. when we say IPO, we envision these big events that involve investment banks that are the underwriters and, you know, mm-hmm. the stock uh, is offered to, the, to other <laughs> big investors and it all happens. Right kind of uh, on Wall Street, and it's a very sort of opaque process, and very very rarely do individual investors get to be involved in an IPO. And, but but um, there, are other, there are other ways of structuring an IPO. You know, I think when Google went public a few years ago, they mm-hmm. uh, sold part of the company by way of an, an auction um, that was open to uh, non-institutional investors. So... Um, you know, I think maybe this is the time in our economic history for us to experiment with other ways of, of companies going public. I think you'd still have to call it an IPO, and you'd still, you know, you'd still have to comply with all of the SEC regulations around um, an initial public offering. But you know, you could you could definitely go, kind of go down market. Why not? I mean, I think somebody should try that. Well, here's an idea for you. You heard it first here on the Life Tips show. As you know, Life Tips is a, is a website that kind of competes with About.com, except that they have hundreds of millions of dollars uh, of, of revenue being generated on an ad basis, and, and we don't. But aside from that minor problem, when I started Life Tips 10 years ago, the, the concept was to try to explore the possibility of compensating the gurus. We bring in one guru for each niche topic, try to compensate them with stock, right? Stock mm-hmm. for words. <laughs> and, and make it even more interesting that if your words perform and drive traffic and appeal to readers and fans, then you should earn more stock because of your marketability and your ability to grow your fan base. Uh, but I would love to hear your thoughts on that. You're a writer and, and, a, and, a, and a chief correspondent for a publication. You know, imagine that there are someday hundreds of writers adding tips to help make life better. Would it even be possible in your mind to imagine compensating writers for their work with a stock value opportunity like that? I think it would be possible, but just from watching um, how option grants are administered around here and around other companies I've been at, there's a lot of paperwork involved. So I think the first thing you need to do would be probably to set up some kind of... uh, Maybe automated uh, way of administering option grants because uh, it's, it's, it involves lawyers and involves lots of signatures uh, for every little piece of uh, stock that or ownership or, or options that move around. So uh, if you could automate that, if you could you know build it into a spreadsheet, if you could put it online, sure, it might it might it might work. Um, I guess the, the, you know you, if you can find people who believe in your mission and your model and who want to help you succeed and are willing to work for. Uh, for equity um, or options rather than for pay, that's that's great. And a lot of companies are doing that. In fact, um, uh, you know, I've written about a really cool local um, mobile application developer called Fitness Keeper that has a um, a GPS-based iPhone app called Runkeeper, and um, you know, thousands of people use this app to 
track their runs every day, and they basically they wind up getting a little map that shows exactly where they went, and the device shows them how fast they ran and what their sort of uh, speeds were at different points in the run. Um, and the guy um, who's the founder and CEO of this company paid all of his developers uh, in, in equity uh, until he could reach the point through the iPhone app download revenues that he was able to start paying people. And now he's got a staff of uh, himself and three others. So, you know, you bootstrap um, in any creative way you can. It's just, you know, you know, writers often have to carve together a living from several different sources, and equity is not going to put, you know, meat on the table. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, so it depends on uh, whether you're working with people who also have some other source of support, I would say. Right. Well, Amanda and I know a lot about that. We represent literally hundreds of writers here at Life Tips that, that, uh, that often, uh, you know, work for uh, the, the desire to make the world a better place one tip at a time, and, and, uh, and that's we've been really blessed with great content. But we've also paid out literally tens of millions, well, not probably tens, but, I mean, I've personally paid out many, many millions of dollars to freelance uh, writers and freelance graphic designers and, and really built my last 20 years of my life around supporting freelancers. So we know a lot about that. But I think my original idea of the pre-IPO market, you know, was was very much related to to that sort of methodology of maybe there is a new layer of investment opportunity that the country needs without the red tape and the regulation. You know, maybe, you know, people are fed up and tired of, of, of the stock market volatility and want to invest in people, you know, want to invest in people they know, um, in, in, in ideas they like, in products that they like um, that can grow and, and, and reap benefits. So I, I think that we're ready for something new. Um, and I think the general public is ready for something new. And I think that my friends and family are related to something new, you know, are interested in something new that maybe shares risk distribution a little bit more, um, you know, and or has some safeguards and priority paybacks and financial trouble situations. I mean, it would be complex, no question about it. But I just think there's a goldmine of an opportunity there somewhere. Where Where do you – what are some of the – the hot ideas from the VPCs, what's getting funded, I guess, is my question. You know, what are, you know, is social media super hot right now? Are, are gadgets and widgets, you know, you know, breaking through? You know, is there anything that's super hot? And what do you think the next wave is going to be, Wade? Hmm. Well, yes, certain areas of social media are definitely hot. I think that the businesses that have some way of monetizing social media are especially interesting. <laughs> and, you know, I think it's probably hard uh, these days to go out and ask for funding to build sort of yet another social network um, when it's clear that they're, you know, the market can't support that, that many new social networks. But if you have a way uh, to take the, the time people are spending um, online or spending on their mobile phones and, and actually um, translate that into some revenue for somebody, I think those, those types of companies are um, attracting um, new investments and ongoing and continuing investments, sort of those Series B and Series C rounds from the venture funders. So, for example, uh, here in Boston, there's a fair number of companies involved in the mobile sphere uh, actually, hundreds. Boston's a real. It turns out it's a real hub for um, for mobile uh, development, um, both on the hardware side and the software side. And there are companies here that specialize in uh, in distributing ads. So, you know, ad ad. We we're all familiar with web-based ads, but mobile phones are becoming better and better platforms for advertising as well. And there are companies figuring out how to how to put um, little tiny ads on your little tiny screen. <laughs> And how to um, how to turn uh, sort of uh, web websites into something that look right and feel right and work work well on a mobile uh, mobile platform, um, okay. so that companies can can uh, monetize that as well. Um, there, there's a lot of activity, um, definitely in in social media, and I'm very excited about it. It's not clear that there are any of these really sort of knock them out of the park. Um, opportunities. The Google of social media um, hasn't come along, or maybe Google is the Google of social media. We'll, we'll find out. Um, they're certainly interested in it. You know, they're they're working on things like Google Friend Connect, um, which is uh, and and that product that happened to be developed, you know, by the the local Cambridge operation of Google here in Massachusetts that 
gives website owners a way to um, let their users connect with other users of other websites. So it's basically a sort of a common registration system and commenting system um, that stretches across uh, many, many blogs. So they're interested in the whole social media phenomenon. They've got, obviously, they've got Google Talk. They've got, they've got Gmail, which is, you know, email is still, to my mind, it's, it's you know, 20 years old, but it's the, it's the main way we do communicate socially uh, on, online. So it's too, probably too early to write off uh, good old email. Um, any company that can figure out how to help people manage their email better, I think, is, uh, is probably one that venture capitalists would look at. Um, some really interesting companies coming out of uh, local incubators like Techstars, Techstars as a company is a, an organization that got started in Boulder, Colorado, and, and now has an outfit, um, a branch kind of operation here in Boston. And they will bring in 10 or 12 um, early-stage companies every year and run them through a boot camp kind of operation and get them up to speed as entrepreneurs and help them develop their products and uh, bang out a prototype and then have them uh, get them in front of investors for a, a demo night uh, where they make their pitch and they say how much angel capital they need or how much venture capital they need, and hopefully something will come of that. And at the most recent Techstars demo night, there were two or three companies looking at this problem of helping people manage manage their, their email and index it. And uh, so lots of stuff like, like that, sure. Um, are there any other sort of industries that, that you are particularly interested in? I can maybe tell you about local examples we've covered, but it's kind of hard for me to, to um, off the top of my head, tell you what the hottest fields are because I just spend my, spend my days covering such miscellaneous things. I might be writing about wind farms one day and you know waste energy plants the next day and <laughs> semiconductors and, and, and flexible solar panels the next day. So mm. you know we're all over the place. We're just kind of going where the entrepreneurs are. And, and what is your driver typically? A company that's gotten invested or a company that you stumbled on a press release for? How are you finding the story behind what's going on? Yeah, so we, if you check out Xconomy, you'll see diff- several different kinds of stories. And we definitely try to stay on top of the, the daily sort of uh, flow of financing news. And every day there's uh, companies that are announcing uh, funding rounds of various sizes. Um, there was a sort of uh, lull in funding activity uh, during the summer and sort of a holdover from the worst parts of the recession. But uh, my my impression is definitely that funding activity has picked up in the fall, September, October, November, very busy months, lots and lots of funding news. So we do write about that stuff. We want, we want people to be able to come to Xconomy and find out about all of the local companies that are getting funded. Um, but uh, our bread and butter really is uh, longer, uh, more analytical pieces about um, how innovation really works and, and what, you know, what entrepreneurs are doing around town that's working and what's not working. So you know, we might find out about a company the first time uh, by writing about their, their, their seed funding or their, their Series A announcement. Uh, but then we'll, very quickly we'll get to know those people. We'll go and do an interview the next week or the next month. We'll get to know them personally find out what their story is, where they came up with their idea, how they made it work, uh, what you know, obstacles they've had to overcome. And then we'll do you know, deep, much deeper profile stories about those companies. And uh, now that we've been doing this for two and a half years or so, we're getting to know a good number of companies around town. Also, the same, same thing, same exact thing happening in our other two cities. We've got really great reporters um, stationed in Seattle and San Diego who are getting to know their communities. And um, so the more we write, uh, the more entrepreneurs we know, the more we can follow these entrepreneurs as they move from company to company and start new companies. Um, so, you know, it's really about people and, and ideas and how smart people get backing for their ideas and, and how they, you know, even if you've gotten backing, uh, there is, you know, a huge amount of work left to do to prove your idea and get it into the market. So mm-hmm. we, we never have a shortage of things to write about. It's, 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 it's a difficult challenge to, to take an idea, to a plan, to a business, to success, to an uplift and catching the economy at the right time. I mean, it's just, it's just super risky. And, uh, but it is. You know what? When you're in the trenches, it's super fun. <laughs> yeah, I have total admiration for anyone who has the guts to do that. And uh, that's why I, just, I, I love writing about uh, entrepreneurs because they are just, you know, 
uh, indefatigably optimistic, and in, even in the midst of the worst recession since the Great Depression, you know, they are out there um, convinced that they, they are going to change the world. Uh, you know, I talked to one investor recently who says that um, he, he feels like entrepreneurs are basically a different species, and they have a different sort of nervous system from the rest of us, and they're, you know, they cannot see the present. They can only see three years from now. You know, <laughs> and and they're continually frustrated because they see the difference between three years from now and what's around them, and 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 they you know they are congenitally sort of um, uh, forced to to work toward that that world of three years from now. So you want a certain number of people like that around, or you know society just isn't going to evolve. Well, you know, on behalf of entrepreneurs and, and Amanda as well, it, it, it's really important to have people like you out there that care about people like us, <laughs> um, because it, it, it's critical. In the first company I started back in, in 1992 was a company called Freelance Access, um, and Adweek uh, here, uh, Tom Tom Weisand, I think was his last name, you might remember him, uh, he covered a... Um, the advertising industry for a number of years, terrific individual. He just, um, you know, got our brochure in the mail and wrote a story about us and thought we were a cool, innovative company that was in a staffing company in the graphic arts industry, and we were doing things in an innovative way. And that article drew so much attention to our company. It helped validate who we are. It brought legitimacy to the table, and our business grew from there. I was featured in the emerging business section of the Globe and the BBJ and, you know, did the whole Boston route of, you know, having an innovative company doing some different things. But the media played such a critical role in that. It was it was really, really important uh, to, to, to be able to capture the attention of, of people like you. So thanks for that. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's it's interesting how um, a little bit of attention can lead to some more attention, and and it all sort of uh, snowballs from there. So we really love it when we can be the first to talk about a company and do yep. a really good job of telling their story because that will often be their first break, and and they'll really pick up steam after that. So mm-hmm. whenever we can play a role to help people get off the ground, it's it's, it's a great feeling. We'll save some of our innovations for you, Wade, so you can be first first to print with some innovations that we have coming out, uh, particularly at Idea Launch, an interesting company that, that we started as a spinoff to, to Life Tips because we got so good at content. But more on that later. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Amanda, any final any thoughts for Wade in his, as he puts food on the table for thousands of entrepreneurs thanks to his great writing? I know. You know what? I I am so happy that we had him on today. I mean, I feel so much better about the state of things, Byron. Hmm. It's just good to hear a different side of of of, of the industry, and, and you know, it's it's got to be tough to come up with these stories too, Wade. I mean, you you this is a lot of content you folks are managing over there, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of work. We're all sort of flat out all the time. I mean, it's, it's wow. but it is not. I have to say, I have to confess, the secret is it's not tough coming up with stories because there's just so much going on. Maybe yeah. you're all surprised to hear this. It doesn't feel to people like the economy is working well. It doesn't feel to people like ideas are bubbling up and stuff is happening. But believe me, it is. And we have way more that we could be writing about. If we had ten times as many people, we would be able to write ten times as many stories, believe me, because entrepreneurs just cannot be stopped. Do you think one final question for you? Because I see we can we can reach you on you know Worldwide Wade, which is sort of your you know personal blog, and then you've got your Twitter stream you know flowing. Um, you've got your email. You know, do you think that? And you've got your phone number as well, which is great that you published that. Um, do you think that there is going to be a time where there's one central place to communicate with an individual, or do you think we're going to continue to be scattered and spread out with, 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 with these you know groupings of Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn and email and you know et cetera et cetera? Yeah, I think there probably for a while is going to continue to be sort of um, a multitude of ways to reach someone. Each one sort of specialized for some. Um, for some particular purpose. So if you just want to let me know about something uh, but it's not urgent, then the best way to do that is almost always email. And But if it is urgent, I, I definitely would prefer you call me about it. Um, or if you'd just like me to know what you're up to sort of on an ongoing basis, then just send me your Twitter address and I'll subscribe to your Twitter posts. 
you know, and, and or if you're a publication and you have an RSS feed, I'll put that in my feeder. And I can, I can aggregate all those things in one place um, on my web browser. Um, you know, I, I can have five different phone numbers and have those all feeding into one Google, Google Voice account if I want. So mm-hmm. it's up to the individual user to kind of unify those things, but I mm-hmm. think there need to be, there actually do need to be these multiple channels that are tailored for different sorts of messages. Mm-hmm. And different groups of people agree. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Different people, different from different levels of technological sophistication. You know, um, my parents don't follow Facebook or Twitter, but they do know how to email. So, you know, mm-hmm. I, I uh, keep in touch with them that way. And uh, and then we, of course, we talk once or twice a week by phone as well. But you know, if if I just limited my communications to uh, to Twitter, um, that would be leaving out quite a few people. One final super tough question for you because I just I really enjoy this conversation. Do you think that the communication style you have, the written words, the story you're reaching for, is changing? Yeah, no question about it. I mean, what's I changed? Be, uh, well, <laughs> the easiest answer is the the uh, the patience of the audience <laughs> has diminished mm-hmm. greatly. I mean, that's not not really fair to say to, to put it exactly that way, but. There's also there's so much information coming at us uh, from so many different w- sources that we all feel like we it's it's rare that you can afford to sit down and spend half an hour to an hour reading um, you know like a ten thousand word article in the New Yorker or the Atlantic. That's a real luxury these days. So most often we are forced to kind of skim along reading these really quick articles. You know, a hundred words there, five hundred words there, maybe a thousand words there, and so. Um, I was a magazine journalist for a long time and had the luxury of writing longer pieces. And um, now um, I have to be realistic about it. Um, I know that people who come to Xconomy are, are also um, doing many other things in their day and, and probably all at once. So uh, I can't ask them to sit there and read a, a you know, 5,000-word article. So I have to really try and keep everything a lot briefer. And I probably do a, a worse job of that than a lot of my colleagues. I'm still pretty verbose as web writers go. I've been working on that. I think I've been getting better at it, trying to say what I mean to say right away, get get everything into the lead, um, get the important points all onto the first page before you make people jump to the next page. So you know, there are a lot of tricks to the business that I think I've been learning since I went uh, to online-only journalism. Um, it's it's well, And the great thing about it is you can see whether that's working right away because you can see every day how many people are reading your pieces. Uh, which is something that was not possible in the in the old print journalism days. So there are ups and downs. You know, you have to be briefer. You don't get to shape your prose, in, you know, as carefully uh, as you used to. But um, you are getting your words out there much more immediately, and you're getting much faster feedback and much finer grained feedback from your from your readers. So that's that's really gratifying. Do you need to expand? One final question: Do you need to expand? beyond the five W's, who, what, when, where, and why, and, and, and start thinking about engagement and emotional attachment and telling the story and, you know, headlines and, you know, is it getting really more challenging? Are you having to extend into new terrain as a journalist? Yeah, I guess a quick answer to that would be, yeah, the, the five W's um, have to be supplemented by the I, which is you. <laughs> you know, I think most people... Uh, expect a certain level of informality and friendliness and maybe personality um, in, in, a, in a good blog post. And so we try to let that come through when it's appropriate. Go beyond just telling the who, what, when, where, and why and, tell, and, and bring in some of our own personal perspective and experience. And, and why shouldn't we do that? As long as we also stay objective, why shouldn't we leave in, you know, our prose with um, some real human personality? Um, I think people do expect that. And it's really a relief to be able to do that because, you know, it's more fun in the end. <laughs> right on. Fun is great, and it's been fun having you on the show today, too. Wade, thanks for your time today. It's been really fun for me, too. Thanks for having me on. Right on, everyone. Until next week, I hope your life's a little smarter. Better. Faster. And optimistic. Right on. Thanks, everyone. We'll <laughs> see you next week. 